Hello and welcome. Thank you all for joining us today for the WAM Leaders Interim Results Webinar. My name is Bridget Thalander and today I'm joined by Lead Portfolio Manager Matthew Hout, Portfolio Manager John Ayub and Equity Analyst Anna Milne. To start, I'll first give you an update on the WAM Leaders Interim Result and then I'll pass to the investment team to discuss the investment portfolio before opening up to Q&A. So to begin, the WAM Leaders Investment Portfolio performed strongly during the half year to 31 December 2022, increasing 8.8%. In the 2022 calendar year, the investment portfolio outperformed the S&P ASX 200 Accumulation Index by 9.9%, while being, on average, 97% invested in equities. The WAM Leaders Board of Directors declared a fully franked interim dividend of 4.5 cents per share. And this represents 12.5% um, an increase on the FY 2022 fully franked interim dividend and an annualised dividend yield of 5.8% on yesterday's closing share price of $1.55. The profits reserve was 41.1 cents per share as at 31 December representing 4.1 years of dividend coverage. I'll now hand over to Matt, John and Anna, who will provide a market update, discuss key portfolio themes and take us through some company examples. Thanks, Matt. <clears throat> Thanks, Bridget, and welcome everyone to the WAM Leaders Investment Call. I'm going to talk about the uh, market um, through a macro lens and also an economy lens, and then I'll hand over to John. We'll run through some of the portfolio positioning, and then on to Anna. We'll run through some of the, our stocks and our views. So, what I thought I'd do is walk through some slides that are catching our attention at the moment, and also um, I thought it was a good pl place to start. Um, given the uncertain environment we're in, I thought this was a great quote from the um, Godfather of Investing, Benjamin Graham. I guess it sums up our views at the moment. It's not about avoiding risk, but navigating through this period and positioning the portfolio according to the circumstances of which are in front of us. So the way we do it at WAM Leaders, we've got an investment process, we can navigate these periods. So it's not um, uncertain for us. It's just part of the process. So um, what I'll do now is walk through some of the market valuation slides that I've put together. Um, and then we'll walk on to the economy. So I, I guess it's very noisy at the moment. We're in a bear market. Um, what I'm trying to show here on slide or page nine is how we're progressing through the um, bear market. And as you can see, if you're, you're following the slides, it shows you that this is not uh, uncommon. Um, we're progressing quite um, normally through this period. Um, Normally, bear markets last for a, you know a, a fairly lengthy period of time, but it depends on the drawdown as well. You've had some really large drawdowns in previous bear markets, and they've been very short duration. We feel like this will be a long duration event, but we are progressing quite nicely, and we are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel um, through some of the, the leading indicators. But it's still we've still got work to do. Um, we're still going to navigate um, a fair distance before we come out of that. Now, on sl slide or page 10 here, financial conditions are a very important part of equity valuations. Financial conditions were extremely tight last year, and that was a function of rising interest rates, a strong US dollar as well, and credit spreads increasing. 
And what happens is when financial conditions tighten, equity valuations fall. We've had a reprieve in financial conditions now. It's starting to um, be a little bit easier, but we feel like financial conditions will tighten again later this year. So we, we feel like we're in a narrative now where we were in a soft landing potential scenario and that is sort of flipping now where we're on a probably a, a higher rate for longer trajectory um, for the immediate future. And why has this happened? Like we touched on financial conditions and interest rates, as you can see here on page 11, the interest rate environment uh, last year in particular was incredibly tight, very coordinated policy changes. And it was really the emergency policy settings unwinding. And that has continued today, um, as you can see here, um, very, very strongly. Um, we're coming towards the end of this policy tightening cycle, but we feel like there is a little bit of a journey left on this one. And when we look at um, policy, central banks were very key in putting liquidity into the system. So central banks inject bank reserves into the system and bank reserves are sort of the lifeblood of um, how the financial system operates. So they were in emergency settings for a period. And again, you can see that is in contraction now. And that's just those reserve uh, emergency, emergency settings coming out of the market. So again, Nothing to be too alarmed about at this point in time, but you can just see how the policy has definitely shifted and we're starting to feel that through equity markets and also the economy. And on page um, 12 here, I think it is, we've got a slide here showing how the last 20 years has really been a, a short bond, long equity period, apart from a few um, mishaps like the GFC and the like, but you can see that gap between bonds and equities has narrowed. And again, we think that's a little bit of a, what you're seeing at the moment, a bit of an asset allocation shift. So um, that has been a headwind for equities. Um, probably uh, we see that as an ongoing uh, issue for equities. But again, nothing to get too alarmed about at this point in time um, because we think that could reverse later this year. So um, this is something that's been a bit of a, a headwind for equities as well. And when we uh, obviously look at the global macro environment, then we try and nail down some of the impacts on the Australian economy. And we thought we'd put together some slides around what we're watching in the Australian economy at the moment. So I guess when, when we try to assess how the economy is performing, we try to look through cycles and where we are in various cycles. We are definitely in a slowing down period after the extraordinary resurgent um, uplift from COVID lockdown. So we are definitely slowing. Um, again, this is nothing to be alarmed about. It's just, it gives us an indication of where we should position the portfolio. So again, it, we are watching this closely. We don't think we'll be in up for a hard landing at this point in time, but definitely a slowing economy. So again, that shapes on how we position the portfolio. And I guess here is we're trying to explain how bad confidence is within Australia. So consumer confidence is at all-time lows. Business confidence is doing a lot better. But one of the reasons why consumer confidence is so low is really a function of this next slide on, on page 17. So the cost of living. The cost of living for Australians has been incredibly steep in recent periods, and it's really a function of inflation flowing through the economy and taking a lot, away, a lot of that discretionary spending power away from consumers. Um, that is likely to continue, albeit inflation in Australia should 
water rate. The RBA were, were out recently saying they think maybe it peaked in December. Um, it's probably going to take a little bit longer to come out of the system, but it definitely abating, um, which brings us to, you know, why has inflation hit the Australian economy and so hard in the consumer? And it's really through a lot of the discretionary items uh, like food and transport, which is linked to um, moving goods as well, but also households as well and housing. Um, housing, we went through this incredibly uh, stimulative period with low interest rates. We had APRA, you know, sort of allowing a lot of lending to go on. We've had financial or fiscal responses uh, allowing people to access super. So that put a lot of pressure on Australians' um, demand um, part of the economy. So again, it's really impacted um, inflation and again, a real headwind for consumers. It is abating, as I mentioned, but there is a little bit more of a headwind to come and that's from the fixed interest role within um, fixed interest mortgage lending. Again, it's, it's been a very big part of flow going forward and this year there's a huge amount to roll over um, starting now. So that will add to the, the sentiment um, hit to consumers and also their discretionary spend. And you can see not only the variable part of the book has increased in rates, but this fixed part over the next few years is going to be another headwind for, for consumers. So we're a little bit cautious on the consumer. And one of the saving graces uh, for Australia over the last, I mean, 10, 15 years has been China. So China was locked down for about two and a half years, uh, really weren't driving the economy that hard. They had, you know, fits and starts of trying to get the economy going. But what we saw in January was the total social financing hit an all-time record. So that um, probably puts China in good stead for this year. They're trying to get credit going through the system again and get some activity going. So we think the policy environment for China will be quite good uh, going forward this year. So we think, although a lot of the um, stocks have had a run already, the, the backdrop or the macro environment is still conducive for, for good performance from you know, Chinese-facing stocks on the ASX. So I guess in summary, we are going to a slowdown period. We think financial conditions are, are probably going to get tighter over the next month or two on, on a tactical point of view. We went from a scenario last year in October, November, where there was a huge liquidity issue to uh, a Goldilocks scenario through November, December, um, and then January about lower rates and an easing environment. We're probably The narrative is probably shifting again now, and we're going to have a tighter environment over the next month or two. So we are quite cautious short term. But we are working our way through this point of the cycle. We think later this year, potentially, you will get an easing cycle, so interest rate cuts um, if, if they go too hard in the short term. And that will create an environment where equities and the PE ratio could improve. But we do still think there's an earnings impact to be felt over the next three to six months. Um, but eventually, a falling interest rate environment will cushion uh, equities on the valuation. So um, at that point, I'll now hand over to John, who will run through some of the portfolio position. Thank you, Matthew. As you can tell, there's a fair bit to unpick at the moment. And from Matt's comments, uh, what, we, what we do know is going to be uncertainty. And uncertainty is creating the volatility that we're seeing in the market markets over the past few months. The ASX had a really good start to this financial year, up 13 or 14% for the XJO. Um, 
but that's not to say we're about to go through a slightly tougher period. And from where we stand, we're looking at the market and the valuations. It's been a fairly robust uh, period where uh, a lot of stocks, and particularly in January, were had a really strong period. And what we've seen in February was probably a pullback of that enthusiasm as earnings have started to come through and showing the real headwinds in these economy, as Matt was pointing out. And what we'll say is that results period certainly highlighted that revenue is is still there. The top line growth is a, is present for a lot of the for a lot of the uh, representatives of the ASX 200. But what we're starting to see is that bottom line pressure, particularly as costs start to grow, uh, as consumers start to struggle. So for us, from where we're where we're building our portfolio today, we're sticking very much towards quality defensives. Is probably how we characterise the vast majority of the portfolio. Uh, other things that we really like uh, is valuation support. So as you can see from our top 20 holdings, we've got a diverse spread of stocks. And for, for the first time in a long time, you probably could characterise the portfolio as more of a stock-picking portfolio as opposed to directionally uh, a directionally uh, macro-driven portfolio. And that, that, is, that is with some intent because of the uncertainty that we've seen in valuations, uncertainty we've seen around the consumer and, and, and the markets more broadly, we feel like right now is an opportunity to pick the best in breed stocks that will kind of help us navigate through the next period of the market, uh, the various gyrations that we will see. So if you kind of pick a few of those names out, if we can kind of get that valuation support, if we can get that earning certainty, if we get quality and defensive characteristics, which stocks like the Brambles and APA, uh, Adexis, all kind of demonstrate the transurban. These are the stocks that we think will continue to outperform over the over the next little period. And then what we do is typically from a risk portfolio, as Matt kind of highlighted with the open comment, we will take stocks which we think have uh, gotten too cheap. And we, although they're higher up the risk curve, like a star and a Lendlease, uh, we will take those uh, proportionate risks within the portfolio because we think there is that valuation support at the current trading levels. To, to kind of provide that catalyst or that, that positive performance and that re-rate over the next six to 12 months. Um, other things that we will call out is that valuations uh, still remain fairly full. And I think what we will see is that the earnings side of the PE uh, will start to pair back particularly over the next six months. That's where we see the opportunity to buy some high-quality companies where we'll see some temporary headwinds based on this rate environment that we're kind of talk, talking to and Matt's tightness that Matt highlighted will provide us these opportunities over the next six months, in particular by high-quality companies, which we haven't bought for a very long time, at valuations we haven't seen for a very long time. And as those opportunities arise, we'll capitalise on those uh, and ensure that they'll probably be the next leaders of, that, of our portfolio going forward. Um, a couple of comments also that we'll talk about and some things that we're starting to see, political pressure on profits. You just need to follow Twitter for a couple of hours and you can start seeing all the noise that we're all the noise from various... Uh, pockets of, uh, of, of unions, of politics, uh, calling for the large Australian corporate give back. Uh, throughout reporting season and speaking to various management, we've all seen the fear, I call it fear in, in management eyes of what politics may do to earnings, what this could do to wage growth, what this could do to the bottom line. Is there, could there be super taxes? Uh, it's something that we're watching closely. You've already seen governments uh, get their hands on uh, the energy transition. You've seen them get, in, get their hands on the gaming space and even stay on, 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 on superannuation. Uh, nothing is off limits, uh, and it's something that we're carefully evaluating when we construct the portfolio. Uh, what risks do we see around 
that of political pressure, which we haven't seen for a long time. Uh, it, it, it provides another level of uh, sovereign risk, which we never thought we'd have to worry about in Australia too much, but it's becoming certainly more and more present. So, you know, what we would say is the portfolio is more balanced than it has been previously. Uh, we've got stocks with valuation support like Star, Lendlease and AZJ. Uh, there's quality stocks like Dexas, TWE. Um, these are names that we think will continue to drive the portfolio. Uh, and the sectors that we are avoiding, and clearly uh, the consumer is a sector that we're, we're, we're avoiding. We just think that it can't get any, uh, it can't get any better. It's certainly going to get much worse. Um, we've had full fall from COVID. We've had, we've had uh, balance, the consumer balance sheets continue to shrink. Disposable incomes uh, becoming thinner and thinner. So from that standpoint, we'll continue to stick to defensive quality names in the portfolio. And perhaps I'll hand over to Anna who can run through a couple of examples of those. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, so I thought I'd run through one name that I have mentioned a number of times before. So at risk of being a broken record, CSL Limited is a key holding in our portfolio and has been for a long time. We built our position a bit heavier around the middle of last year, as you can see in that share price chart on um, the bottom left. Uh, it really is a fundamental story, CSL. Although the macroeconomic is very favourable, it's highly defensive, isn't related at all to what is happening in the economic environment. It is a fundamental story about a very well-run business uh, with a lot of growth levers, which are all really coming to fruition in the next couple of years. And the team, Matt, John and I met with uh, the outgoing CEO, Paul, uh, just a couple of weeks ago following their most recent result. And not only did it give us a lot of insights into the financial and operational uh, expertise of the company, but also just the ethos and the performance mindset that they really have and what's really driven their success over the last decade. And it's a story we continue to like, uh, so it will remain uh, holding our position in our portfolio for quite a while to come, I expect. I'm fortunate enough to be travelling to Europe next month to really get under the hood and talk to that next level down uh, in the business of their operations in Switzerland and Germany. So I'll report back after that, but CSL is absolutely key holding in our portfolio. I also wanted to touch on a couple of names that are slightly further down in our portfolio, so wouldn't get a lot of attention previously, and they're names that we actually built more recently, so at the start of this calendar year for Medibank, for example. Uh, so as I'm sure many of you are aware, they had a cyber attack, uh, I think it was October last year, according to the share price chart, and, and it did get hit, as you'd expect. Uh, there was a lot of negative sentiment that policyholders would be running in every direction, and they wouldn't recover reputationally, there'd be a lot of costs, and we let the air clear for a while, we didn't touch it, and then we decided the fundamentals of business are still extremely strong. Uh, claims have come back a lot slower than expected from hospitals in terms of elective surgeries. And again, it's a, it's a defensive, defensive sector into a slowdown given the tax uh, implications for Australians that most policyholders benefit from. So we built this position uh, based on the sentiment and it delivered a really strong result. So that's the name that we've been quite happy with, Medibank Private. And then the last name I wanted to talk about was Brambles. Now, Brambles is probably another positioning story. It didn't really participate at all in the rally at the start of this year, despite what looked to us like the fundamentals improving. So the lumber price was falling. Uh, and even though there's a consumer slowdown, they're mostly exposed to staples. 
And even if uh, there is some weakness, it might actually be positive as the outcome of the result in that if there's a destocking, there will be less pallet constraints and they'll be able to get their pool operating more efficiently in terms of pallets. So we uh, took a position in this late last year. We, we increased our position late last year and that had a, had a good result. So Brambles is a third name I thought I'd mention. And with that, I'd like to hand back to Bridget. Thanks, Anna. Um, yeah, so we'll open up for questions now. And thank you to those who've been sending through all of these webinar questions. We will answer as many as we can. Um, and if we run out of time, we will contact you after the call. So I think we'll begin with some of the questions that have been sent in from our shareholders. Matt, this first question is from Alex. He has asked, what were your biggest takeaways from reporting season in terms of where the earnings cycle is at? Thanks, Alex. Great question. I guess the biggest takeaway, I'll, I'll touch on John's point as well, is around government intervention. Um, was it was a common thing throughout every CO we spoke to, um, just some wariness around potential intervention. So very cautious, uh, I would say, would be the biggest takeaway. As far as, like, where are we in the earnings cycle, everyone is uncertain. Everyone's like, we, we, try, we try to get some clarity around you know, the outlook, and there is so much uncertainty at the moment. You can see that in the, the soft data, which is the leading indicators. So the key takeout was uncertainty, uh, potential intervention, and also the the flight to rein in OPEX costs because obviously inflation has gone through the top line and then inflation is coming through the operating cost line now. And in a moderating sales environment, margins are going to come under pressure. So in our minds, the labour market has to soften is probably the, the takeaway from some of the results. But there, there was a few bright spots. I mean, QBE was an absolute standout result. Um, you know, they were benefiting from this period. So Aurora was another great one, the, the Australia-US packaging, beveraging um, company. So there were bright spots, but overall the trend was um, a very cautious approach very uncertain around, you know, government was the biggest one, whereas, like, we actually don't know what they're going to do. They they feel like they're going to come under pressure. Um, so it makes it very hard um, to get on with business when you've got such a negative environment. So I guess they were the, the big takeaways from reporting season. Great. Thanks, Matt. And we'll actually stay with you. Alex uh, has also asked... Given the dividend cuts in the mining sector and growing headwinds facing the banks, have you seen signs of a rotation in terms of earnings leadership from reporting season? Yeah, a good question there. Um, there has been a rotation in resources. Uh, again, costs were coming through quite high. But also, resources do really well when the US dollar is, is weakening and that we've had a strengthening in the US dollar. Of, of late as the interest rate environment has tightened up in the US. So that was pro predominantly a driver of some of the rotation out of the resources, but costs in resources were, were quite high in general. So there has been a rotation out of, of resources. It's not going to banks, because as you mentioned there, banks, I mean, CBA scared everyone when they came out with their NIM, uh, a little chart, one chart in their pack was around NIMs and the declining NIM environment from from uh, last year, where 
everyone thought the, the yield would keep increasing until the last interest rate hike, but that's been pulled forward. So we actually haven't seen a distinct leadership in the top, normally in the, the big cap stocks like that, the top 20 stocks, that would find another home, resources, financials, normally pile into CSL or, you know, the staples. There's been a little bit of money into staples, but so far there hasn't been a clear trend. So it feels like people are just holding on to the cash while they lighten these stocks. So there's no, normally you would get a clear trend, but there hasn't been this time. So we're still watching that one. Okay, great. And while we're on the topic of reporting season, uh, Harvey Norman reported their result and we've had a few questions come in around that. What are your thoughts on the health of consumers in Australia, particularly following the Harvey Norman result? Yeah, I guess just a follow-on from, you know, earlier in the presentation, there, there is significant pressure on the consumer in Australia, the, the cost of living pressures and then the, the verbal rate mortgages and the fixed rate mortgages coming through now. Um, so the consumer outlook is pretty bad. And then Harvey Norman, obviously, I think he made a few comments around in February was was terrible. So, uh, again, this is just a natural play out of that stress on the consumer after the, you know, ir- almost irrational spending for a period, even though um, we could all see what was coming. There was almost a, we're just going to keep spending until uh, it all gets too much. And we're starting to see that now. So is it a sign of recession? I'd say recession is a too strong a word. It's just a moderation uh, from what we're seeing. Even in the retail sales data today, you look like a, a beat on the headline number, but seasonally adjusted, it was actually weaker. So it is coming through the broad retail sales numbers now. So it is a weakening of the of the consumer. The, 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 there's two sides of the consumer point right now. Over the last two, three years, we've seen a very much pull forward of demand for uh, at-home products. So white goods, um, TVs, you, you name it. So Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi benefited materially over the past couple of years from, from the pull forward of demand, the low rates, the stimulus. Um, so what we expect now is that end of the market, the furniture, the homewares, the white goods, we expect a slowdown, a material slowdown in that sector, particularly over the next 12 to 24 months. The pockets of the consumer where we think may hold up uh, are those that are spending on travel, entertainment, and those exposed to the younger demographic who don't have a mortgage or are seeing wage growth, uh, wage growth uh, and are going to spend more. So I think there's the problem, the two sides of the consumer coin. Uh, we'll see more spending in home than out of home um, from families, um, and so it's something to be really careful of, uh, and cautious and conscious, I should say, going forward. Thanks, John. Uh, and John, perhaps you can answer this next one. George says, "Where are you seeing the biggest opportunities right now, and why?" You did touch on this, but just to reiterate. Uh, maybe, oh, George, thanks for the question. Just maybe the stocks that we hold in a meaningful way within the portfolio that we think are standouts. Uh, I'd call Santos, I'd call Lendlease, I'd call Dexas as probably the ones that stand out from a valuation standpoint. Uh, Santos is incredibly cheap considering considering its peers and Woodside and the like, and we think over the next six months we should see a bunch of positive and net, positive catalysts that should see this re-rate. Uh, I won't put a target price out there because it'll probably come back to bite me, but um, we think that's the potential upside. And stocks like Dexas, where it's at a discount of circa 30% to its net tangible assets, we could argue that the NTA is wrong, and we probably would say that the NTA is wrong. However, it's best in breed, and I think there's a middle ground which should be uh, should be reached uh, in the not-too-distant future because these are Tier 1 office assets, uh, and they're just mispriced. And Lend-Lease is one of those ones where I think over time... Uh, 
if if the equity markets aren't going to value it appropriately, I think the company will take measures into their own hands and start divest, divesting things uh, to make the market realise that uh, the sum of the parts is much greater than the current share price. So they're three within the portfolio that will call out. Uh, and maybe if we kind of take a step below and look at names that we, we're, we're trying, we're, the smaller names that we're looking at and potential, um, I won't say we will or won't, but like stocks like Domino's and James Hardy's, A2 Milk, uh, these are names which are great franchises, great businesses, um, and if you get to see, uh, get these things at uh, depressed valuations following one or two bad earnings periods, uh, these are kind of names that you can build for a long, long, long-term uh, benefit for shareholders. So they're the names that we're looking at closely. We're not, uh, they're not, they're not the leaders of the portfolio today, uh, but given uh, given time, they may be in the future. Fantastic. Thanks, John. And that leads in well, uh, Anna, I think you can answer this one. Um, you touched on CSL, Brambles and Medibank Private, but Ingrid has asked, um, she says, you mentioned some of the companies you're liking for the year ahead. Can you please touch on the core holdings uh, that contributed to outperformance in the 2022 calendar year? Absolutely. Thanks, Ingrid. So I think it was a very volatile period, and so it is difficult to make any broad brush comments about uh, stocks in particular that delivered that outperformance. There were times where we had to aggressively change our positioning uh, based on uh, either changing change in the data, changing expectations, or, or changes in our own views. So if I maybe focus on the latter part of the year, the last few months, we took the macroeconomic view that we had reached peak rates, so uh, rates were expected to... And so with that in mind, we positioned heavily into REITs, so real estate and infrastructure. So Johnny just mentioned a few of the names, such as Dexas and Lamleys. Uh, also own Goodman Group, uh, APA, gas pipeline company, and uh, TCL, for example, Transurban, were names that uh, delivered our performance for us over that final quarter of the calendar year. Fantastic. Thanks, Anna. Uh, Matt, this one's from Jared. He says... You seem somewhat more buoyant on the economic environment ahead. What are your plans to continue driving solid returns in 2023? Yeah, thanks, Jared. Um, buoyant would be a, maybe an exaggeration of the economic view, but the, the great thing is the stock market is not the economy, um, which is which is hard to get your head around sometimes, but um, there is obviously a linkage through earnings, um, obviously, but there's also the financial conditions and, and the, the tightness and which and interest rates affect uh, PE. So we're more buoyant because we can see that there is an end here. Uh, before we were like, we're going into such an uncertain period. You had the fastest interest rate hike cycle in history. You had dislocation in markets in October, November with the, the global US dollar shortage and credit spreads flying out and we were in a position where, uh, hey, this looked terrible. Um, so it's probably less terrible than, it's probably the best way to um, describe it, but we are in a slowing economy. So we wouldn't be buoyant, but we can see a path out of this. Before we were on a collision course, um, it, it did look terrible. So we can see a path out of this. So in, in that respect, we're a little bit more buoyant than we're, where we were. Um, but we're, we're definitely constructive on equities in the, the latter part of this year. We think we're progressing nicely. We're, we're going through the cycle without too many issues so far. There is a slowdown, as we mentioned, but 
so far, no dislocations or crises yet. Um, but again, the, the policy from here will dictate what path to go. If the policy becomes too reactive late in the cycle, it can cause a lot of damage. But we think the inflation moderation, which we're seeing now, although in the short term there is a bit of uh, hawkishness creeping back in the central banks, that will unwind as the economic data unwinds. And the economic data of the study has been strong. It has only been strong because of seasonal adjustments. And the seasonal adjustments are comping periods of COVID, which in theory, it, it makes no sense. So we think the underlying data is weak, which will be shown up later in March, April, May. So that will take the, the short-term interest rate hits out of the market. So a long, long way to answer it, but the environment for stocks will get better later this year. Great. And uh, I'll stay with you, Matt. This one's from Neil. He says, in the FI23 interim result, the portfolio held over 25.2% in the materials sector. Why are we so heavily exposed to this sector? Yeah, I guess uh, the, the way we run land leaders is we're trying to expose ourselves to areas with tailwinds. And for us, the China reopening became a significant source of opportunity for us. We we're watching China never really gives you a direct signal um, of their policies, but they, they'll give you little clues along the way. And every week we're getting clues around reopening, dropping zero COVID, you know, stabilising the property sector. So all these things were happening. And while that happened, we built our position up in materials. So that's why it was such a large position, um, predominantly well, solely on China reopening. And that played through. And we've, we've lied that as the stock prices have, have reacted to the, the reopening. So that's the reason why we're so heavily in materials. Thanks, Matt. And John, this one's from Philip. He says, has the increase in CSL's share price made you think that you should sell some shares? Uh, thanks, Philip. Maybe I'll lift the hood a little bit on uh, how we do things in team leaders. We wake up every day and ask ourselves a question. If we didn't own a stock today, what weighting would have been in the portfolio at the current share price? So history doesn't dictate what we do. It's what we think that's going to, what the future of that share price is going to do. So uh, we pride ourselves on active management. Um, and if the share price is getting closer to our target price, absolutely, we will trim our, uh, trim our holding. Uh, and equally, if it falls back to someone we think is attractive, we will increase that holding. So in short, yeah, above $300, we did trim some of our CSL. Um, but back in the 290, we'll increase it again. So that's one thing we do pride ourselves on. We remove bias in our decision-making process and we try to come with a neutral view and an open mind every day. Thanks, John. Anna, Marcus has asked, what are your thoughts on Telstra? Thanks, Marcus. So Telstra had a rock-solid result and the main question from here is, are they going to increase mobile pricing by CPI come the middle of the year? So in the last 12 months, I've done the hard work in moving everyone onto contracts where they can escalate it by CPI. But they're now worried that if they increase it by this much, it's going to uh, hurt affordability. And as we've discussed uh, with a uh, close eye from the government, it's definitely uh, will be a wait and see. But their peers, uh, Optus and TPG, are still earning well below uh returns that they expect to. So we do expect mobile pricing will keep moving up. Uh, the other question that we're often asked on Telstra is, is the dividend safe? And 
I think it's fair to say that it's safer than houses at the moment. <laughs> the market has a 17 cent dividend for FY23, an 18 cent dividend for FY24, and a 19 cent dividend for FY25. So, yeah, your, your Telstra dividend is safe. Fantastic. Thanks, Anna. Uh, this next one's for John. Marianne has asked um, about Qantas. She says the recent half year profits from Qantas are impressive. Do you think the airline can maintain this despite several safety incidents and a struggling brand image? All valid, um, valid concerns, Marianne. I think they're in damage control from a company standpoint. They, they realise they probably went too far from a cost standpoint. They probably went a little bit too far on 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 the consumer and, and, and pushed the consumer on pricing, on issue around credits and the expiry of credits. And I think they're responding quite well. But so firstly, around their earnings, um, it's a question around demand. And we think you probably get peak demand later this year. Um, as capacity starts to come on from international players, uh, you should start to see that price and the issue around price abate a little bit. So you won't be spending $20,000 to get to your business class seat to uh, New York if you're lucky enough to fly uh, business class and you won't have to pay $5,000 for your economy seat anymore. So I think we'll get a normalisation around uh, the price of airline tickets back after this year as that capacity comes on. So naturally that means Qantas' earnings probably comes back somewhat. They probably need to put more capex into the business. They've already spoken about putting more fleet and your planes into the system. So. Arguably, you can say that you're probably towards peak earnings for Qantas this year. And then what does the business look like next year? They've done, they've rapidly um, uh, wound, down, wound down their net debt position. So from a capital standpoint, they're in a really strong sound financial position. Uh, and we have a duopoly in Australia. And if you kind of look at the documents coming out from Virgin as they get closer to their IPO, I think competition's probably going to be a little bit more benign than it was in previous cycles. So domestically, I think Qantas will continue to earn strong profits. Internationally, is probably where it pairs back a little bit, given its balance sheet, given its you know, un undermanning multiple, we still think it's okay for the time being. Thanks, John. Anna, this next one's for you. Heidi has asked if you can please talk through a few of the positions that you've added on the back of good reports this earning season. Thanks, Heidi. Sure. So. Uh, these are names that sit outside our top 20, but I thought I'd highlight them uh, because they have been ones that we have been added to or may intend to add to depending on, on price movements. So the first one is Endeavour Group. We think the market is underestimating just how defensive their portfolio is. And as a team, we met with uh, the new CFO, Kate, and we think she's an excellent hire and will do an outstanding job. So we, we like Endeavour Group at the moment. Another name that Matt mentioned was Aurora. Uh, they dispelled... Uh, concerns with the US business at the result. Everyone was really worried about packaging and how it would fare in a declining e-commerce environment. Uh, but again, uh, they just proved they're extremely well positioned for growth and, and Cairns is in the Australia is in Australia is a is a fantastic business uh, with uh, big CapEx plans but big returns uh, from that CapEx. So so we like Aurora, that's a small name uh, in our fund at the moment. And then the last name I thought I'd call out is NSR, National Storage Rate. Uh, I think the storage uh, industry is quite an interesting one. Uh, their top line is growing extremely strongly from a price perspective. And again, there's been some concerns around occupancy and, and how defensive really is storage. But they talk to uh, the five Ds, which drive occupancy being debt, divorce, downsizing, 
dislocation and disaster. And uh, that all sounds quite defensive <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Anna. Uh, Matt, this next one's from, actually, we've had a couple of questions on this from Krishna and Moha. Um, they have commented on the profits reserve and franking balance. Um, is there enough to maintain the current dividend? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks for the question. Um, the profit reserve, we're actually in a very strong position, um, you know, on, on current run rate. It's almost five years of coverage. So um, incredibly strong position um, with respect to the, the, the potential to pay you. There's obviously a sort of board decision uh, what they do with the with that um, dividend coverage, but um, yeah, incredibly strong position. So, um, barring unforeseen circumstances, it's it's hard to see it not being paid for a, for a long period of time. So, um, that's about all we could probably say on the dividend front, given that it's a board decision. But they they do have the, a, a great position to to make those decisions. Thanks, Matt. Uh, and the next one's for John. Ivan says, reflecting on the past year, what could you have done better? Has this taught you anything for the year ahead? Uh, how much time have we got? Um, <laughs> I guess th there's probably three things that stand out that um, as a team we probably could have done better and we got wrong. Uh, the first one I'll call out is uh, James Hardy's and Reliance Group. Um, our process and what we pride ourselves on is top down, bottom up, and what we try to identify those stocks that have that tailwind. And we went too early in, in James Hardy and Reliance um, towards the back end of last year. Uh, we built sizable positions and it was just too early. And they both downgraded twice. Uh, and we didn't learn the first time. We doubled down the second time. We got hit again. So. I think from that standpoint is that the valuation, when, you, when you're going into, a, into the cycle, into the stuff cycle that we're seeing, valuations are irrelevant sometimes and the headwinds and the rapid decline that we saw in housing demand in the US, uh, we missed. So that was probably the first standout that we got wrong. Uh, the second one was uh, Ramsey Healthcare. Uh, we probably got a little bit too close and uh, fell in love with that investment when the takeover was happening. It was kind of looking at the $80 takeover price as opposed to the reality of what the market was telling. So the $88 takeover price, I should say. And um, we missed the fact that debt markets were closing. It was becoming increasingly difficult um, to get access to the funding to, to complete these transactions. And the underlying business was deteriorating also at a rapid rate of knots. So we kind of, those that was another, probably cost us 60 or 70 basis points mm -hmm. from memory. Um so that, those two probably were the, 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 the standouts. And the last one, I think we've got another question on this in a minute. So it was star, and I think we'll kind of go to that one in a second, Richard. Yeah, yeah, that's actually uh, the next question that's just come through, and we've been asked this a few times. Um, so can you explain why you hold star and provide your updated thoughts on the stock after the recent full and share price and the capital raise? Absolutely. So first and foremost... We had a really good experience um, in Crown uh, for the first half of last year where the underlying value of these assets, the demand for these these, 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 these unique, uh, critical uh, tourism hubs, we thought were under the valuation of these stories and we had a really good experience with the shareholders in, in the Crown takeover and made uh, significant returns there. We 
quickly pivoted from Crown into Star and probably game we probably went a little bit too early at about 250, 260, and we sold a lot at $3. And I think if you recall around the AGM, we were kind of voicing some concerns around uh, the sector and uh, towards the back half of last year, we started to sell some, thinking that uh, we got some insight from the Crown's, uh, Crown's update where uh, the amount of volume going through that casino following some of the regulatory train change was um, had slowed significantly. So we tried to slow, we tried to sell a little bit, but not quick enough and not fast enough and nowhere near enough. And you saw the first um, you saw the first downgrade. But what really caught us off guard and star was uh, the treasurer, New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane's land grab. Um, and if I kind of speak out of school for a second, probably the worst policy I've ever seen any politician come out with. Uh, when you have a 40 year agreement, uh, by a contract and you kind of go in there and change that agreement, it makes it very difficult for, for investors to get any confidence in investing in the state of New South Wales um, going forward. And given the significant investments that's going to be required uh, for the green energy transition, it makes it very difficult to trust a government where they're willing to change uh, a contract that they signed via a change in legislation um, to do a quick little land grab on tax and trying to get $100 million ultimately cost the government a lot of money. But putting that to one side, we got caught off guard. The company got caught off guard. Everyone got caught off guard with um, the announcement around uh, the extra extra tax. And that saw the share price spiral from 250 down to $1.90. And that's when we actually built uh, a significant position at uh, $1.90. And then as it kind of played out, the right de- asset right down to $1.6 billion and the, and the deterioration in trading and the... And the, and the um, spiraling of costs, saw that downgrade in early February. So that kind of goes to where we are today. And we doubled down in the capital raising um, at $1.20. And, you know, we've made 25% out of that capital raising. So kind of get to where we are today is $1.50. So what does that mean? What does the share price imply? At $1.50, you're trading well below asset backing. You've got uh, uh, two wonderful assets up in Queensland, which are un- unencumbered. Uh, you've got a 70-year-old, 70-year leasehold asset here in Sydney, um, that in the absence of reform from the government or a change of mind from the government, we're kind of optimistic that the government will actually see the light and do a U-turn around those tax changes that they've kind of commented on. Um, you would see significant cost-out program here at Sydney um, to levels where you try to kind of, our guess is they try to return to 20% operating margins. So all that being said, at $1.50 for a mouse standpoint and within the portfolio, we think there is a very much a skew back to the upside particularly if you get the tax change. And as we start to see a rebound in tourism, particularly from uh, China and other Southeast Asian countries, uh, we think there's significant valuation support. Um, and obviously the one headwind left is uh, the Austrack fine and the class actions, which we think are well and well truly covered uh, in the provisions following the capital raising. So uh, if, if anyone wants to talk more about it, I'm more than happy to uh, take it offline and provide more context, but it, it is one that we got wrong. Uh, it's hurt, um, but you know we've had some uh, green shoots recently from the following the capital raising and made some decent returns back. We're not quite covered our cost base, but we're not far away. Thanks, John. Uh, this next question is from Gary, and I think, John, this might be one for you too. He says, with mining stocks now coming under pressure and experiencing price pullbacks, how are you handling these changing circumstances? 
I'll let Matt take this one. I'll do petrol breath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just on the mining. So, again, the way we look at the world, we have leaders, is we're looking at all sorts of leaders. So, mining stocks for us, we like to chart China Tarwin. The stronger US dollar from potential higher Fed rates is one area we're a bit cautious about. So, we don't, the fundamentals look okay, but the 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 economic or the macro framework is getting a bit tighter for those guys. So we've taken a little bit off the table, but we're looking to add to them over the next period. But um, generally what you've got to look for is like a, a commodities. It's very um, diverse. You've got, you know, industrial production commodities like copper and the like, then you've got the, the EV uh, metals, then you've got the bulks, which is really just China, steel and property. So... It's, it's a little hard to categorise them all at once, but bulk, we, we like the fundamentals, but short-term, the US dollar impact, we're starting to see a, a bit of a headwinds in positioning, um, so we'll reduce that, but we, we'll probably look to add back to those when that condition abates. Industrial metals, copper, you can't really get exposure uh, in a pure play form anymore. We had Oz Minerals, but unfortunately that's gone, and Sandfire just doesn't quite pass the quality test for us to have a big position in that one. We, we don't have a position in Sandfire at the moment, so it's hard to get a pure play of copper. We do own a little bit of uh, lithium through AKE and PLS and uh, independence and, you know, a, a tiny bit through West Farmers. But, yeah, short-term, tactically reducing it a little bit and then um, long-term we'll probably add to those. And Luke is probably a bit of a call-out as well. Um, again, linked to China property, and we like the optionality on rare earths and the processing. So um, Aluka is a call-out. But, again, the way we operate is very tactical. If we like the fundamentals, but the, the backdrop changes, we'll move to take into account the backdrop and then we'll add back into them. Thanks, Matt. Uh, we'll stay with you again. This one's from Rob. He says, Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley seems convinced that the US equity market will suffer a major correction this year and most recently has suggested it will occur in the northern spring. If this does occur, Rob is keen to hear your thoughts on, one, the likelihood and extent of contagion affecting the ASX, and two, whether Australian investors uh, wishing to substantially increase their holdings in local equities might be advised to wait a while. I mean, the the consensus in the US from the US strategists is very, uh, there is a wide range. I mean, Mike Wilson, he, he's, he's a perma bear. He's always been bearish. And um, it's almost like the economy and the the backdrop has held up better and they're sort of doubling down on their bets. I mean, I listened to him the other night and it is quite depressing when you listen to him. He's like, I can't remember the word he used. It had death in it, like a death spiral, or a, uh, it, he was he was talking very uh, bearish. I mean, I sympathise with that view, and we, and we all sympathise with that view. I mean, it is a possibility. We are going to this unknown um, period after that rapid rate hike um, and coming through and hitting the economy. Like, I don't want to go back too far, but the end of 2019, 2020, we were the world was heading into a recession. Like global growth was slowing. The, the Fed had stepped in with like repos, uh, trying to put in liquidity into the system. So, and then you had COVID here and 
massive fiscal, massive monetary policy distort everything. And you've had opening up of economies at different stages. So we are coming out of this in an incredibly tough period to forecast. What we've got to do, though, is look at consumer confidence and leading indicators, which are at all-time lows, like, you know, lows comparable to the GFC, uh, to the dot-com bubble. So there's a lot baked into expectations of how bad things will get. So to see a massive spiral here, you'd almost have to have some sort of event where liquidity dries up, the banking system shuts down, um, you know, like a massive credit cycle. We don't see that happening at this point in time. There is a possibility, though, if, if the Fed stay tight and keep hiking throughout this year, 100% we could go into that scenario. But with everything in front of us at the moment, we don't see that doomsday scenario playing out. If that did play out, how would, would it cause contagion? 100%. Like, Australia is an open economy. It really is. It does follow a lot. So if the US fell by 20%, hey, we're going to follow. Uh, maybe not to the same quantum because we've, we've potentially got China propping us up a little bit, but we would have contagion. So would the, the way we look at it, we, in the portfolio in WAM leaders, we're positioned relatively defensive with quality throughout the portfolio. We're not opening the portfolio up for risk at this point in time. And risk, I mean, at the cyclical front end of of the cycle. We're not doing that yet. So the way we manage the money is we work out where we are in the cycle, how supportive the backdrop is, and then we'll pull the levers. So the lever is pulled back at the moment. We are a bit cautious. Um, But that can change in a heartbeat. It, It could change if... You know, you had a sudden dramatic fall of inflation and policy to fall away. So, um, yeah, we don't see that doomsday scenario um, playing out. So we, we haven't even entertained that yet. But if that did play out, we know exactly what to do. So I guess um, that's the advantage of our investment process. We can actually pull those levers pretty quickly. Thanks, Matt. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> the next question is from Ian, and perhaps you can take this one, Anna. He says, thank you for the excellent result. Could you outline why you prefer Transurban to an investment in Atlas Arteria? Thanks, Ian. I'd firstly um, just highlight that they're both in our top 20 holdings. So we like both companies and I would really say we have a press. So T sells high in weight, so... Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 Um, I'd say TCL, I mean, it's extremely well run and... It has a greater uh, CPI link, and as we know, once uh, tolls go up, they don't come down, so that can only really be beneficial for TCL. I'd say the main reservation will be uh, the CEO stepping down at the last result. It, like any CEO change, it does provide a bit of uncertainty, uh, but we, we do like both names. Yeah, and just to add on, ALX, I think um, the disruption to the French economy last year through the you know, diesel shortages, strikes, really effective traffic volume. So it's probably got more of a tailwind through traffic volume going into this year than, than Transurban, but TCL is actually a higher weight in our portfolio. It's almost double the weight mm-hmm. of ALX, so we actually do think TCL's a higher quality. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you just can't see that in the top 20 of the individual weights. ALX also has the inorganic uh, side of it. They, they recently purchased Chicago Skyway and... Uh, the newly commissioned A79 in France should both provide. If you're looking at earnings uh, growth, one versus the other, there's a few things to consider. 
Fantastic. Thank you. And this next question from Andrew. Um, Jeff's not on the call, but perhaps, John, you might be able to take this one. Uh, he says, can you explain the logic of stockpiling so many years of dividend reserves unless they're be being built up for another leak takeover to distribute across a wider shareholder base? Uh, thank you, Andrew, and probably we'll get Jeff to call and follow up on this one to kind of explain the rationale because these are board decisions, Jeff is the chairman and the board. They take a view on what is a sustainable level of dividend payments. And I think what we've articulated as a, as a group from day one was we wanted to kind of grow a steadily rising stream of fully free dividends. And what we've been able to do since leaders' inception nearly seven years ago is that. And we continue to grow that dividend in a sensible and robust manner. And I guess at the end of the day, that's what the board's trying to do is that sustainable level of dividends because there is volatility and it's not always up years. So to date, we've been able to do that and hopefully we can continue to drive um, that, that growth. Uh, but uh, as towards anything else, I don't think there's anything uh, happening in that regard. Thanks, John. And we might stay with you. We have a question from Scott. He says, which lithium miner would you buy into? Well, the cheapest one on the ASX is West Farmers, to be honest, because uh, pretty much out of value within its current portfolio. But it, for us, it's probably, if you kind of go down the, the quality spectrum, um, Independence has probably got the best asset uh, that they, along with mineral resources, but means it, both of those aren't pure plays. They've got some dilution from nickel or from, from uh, iron ore in Min's, in, in Min's uh, side. So those two have the best hard rock assets in the country. Pilbara and AP are equally good um, at the next level down. But I think at the end of the day, uh, it's more about picking the underlying commodity. And Pilbara's demonstrated that operationally it's sound. AP's had some headwinds. Uh, and for us, I think you're probably going to pull back in the lithium pricing over the next six months. And then from there, we'll probably look to IGO and MINS and Pilbara most likely. Thanks, John. Matt, this question's for you. Joseph has asked, the world is uh, very volatile right now, as you've uh, just discussed. Will your team think about uh, capital management initiatives such as another rights issue so that the team has power to invest? Um, again, that's a board decision. Um, uh, those sort of discussions happen at the board level. We, Our goal is to try and manage the money at the best of our ability and... Um, we just focus on doing that every day. So capital management, I mean, it's really up to the board when they meet and uh, if, if they want to grow. I mean, we'd, we'd love to have more money to manage because there's um, lots of opportunities out there at the moment. Um, something like John and Anna have touched on and some like amazingly good companies at depressed valuation, so 100%. But, um, yeah, that's totally up to the board. Thanks, Matt. Uh, we'll stay with you. And we have a question from Noel. Uh, he says, why is Macquarie Bank not in your top 20 holdings? Uh, Noel, good question. Um, it was for a period in Um <laughs> So it was definitely in the top 20 because the result, we always thought the risk went to the upside and, um, you know, we, we positioned for the result. Um, and, again, it goes back to the process. The, the fundamental story is still intact. We, we, we like Macquarie. We've since reduced it, so it just fell out of the top 20. And the reason why we reduced it was the stock had a great run. Um, and, again, the interest rate environment um, was changing and the strong US dollar. And 
that was enough for us to change the weighting of the, of the stock. But we're looking for a re-entry into the stock because fundamentally we like the story. But it goes back to our investment process where we're always trying to make money and we, if we can move the capital around somewhere where we think we can make more money, we will do that. And that was purely the case with Macquarie. Great run company. Um, it's, it's such an example of how to run a company, um, incentivize the right people, um, let them take risks, and you've seen the rewards over multi-decades. Thanks, Matt. And I think, John, this next question is for you. It's also from John. <laughs> what is your view of gas and oil stocks going forward, in particular Santos and Woodside? Yeah, I probably should have mentioned earlier when asked what we got wrong, and Woodside's probably one of those answers where uh, the demand for Woodside from international investors is something that we, we didn't foresee. Uh, where we look at the valuation disparity between the two today, Woodside is at a 40% premium to what Santos is trading at. And the reason that people and the global investors put it to is when they compare it to the Exxons, the Chevrons and the Totals of the world, the growth profile, uh, the yield um, and the quality of asset compared to that global set uh, has seen Woodside become one of the global mini major, which is very much uh, loved. And unfortunately for us here, our preference for Santos, although it's cheaper, it's, it's yielding more, it's un undertaking a buyback, it's kind of being forgotten from that global investor and has missed that re-rate. Um, but what we do say is that, um, I'll let Matt talk to the commodity in a second because he, he's far more uh, tuned uh, with, with the day-to-day the, the -day gyrations in the oil markets. But what we see today is that Woodside, albeit a great company, run really well. We see significant capex coming for that organisation. Uh, so we probably have limits around the upside, around the dividend, any potential for capital management by buybacks. Whilst we look at uh, Santos and we think if they'll get, if once they complete the sale of PNG LNG, uh, they have some sort of finality around Alaska investment, um, uh, what's happening in Barossa, which we start to see, uh, you can start to see through the press that uh, there's a resolution there coming. Uh, we see significant capital management in the way of buyback, continued growth, dividends, and operationally, I think they've had a few hiccups over the last few, few years, but we still believe in Kevin Gallagher, the CEO, and I think they'll get back on the right track. So that valuation disparity between the two, we think, will be remedied. Uh, and if it's not remedied, one of the global majors could come after it. Yeah. And just on the commodity, um, looking at the commodity, we went into a slight container for a period in oil. So um, it was showing you that there was weak um, demand um, for oil. And uh, that's due to the softening of the economy. But, I mean, China, from our estimations, could be an extra 500 to 1.5 million barrels per day as you get mobility going back into China. You've had Russia cut, you know, an extra 500,000 barrels a day. Um, so the supply side is matching that weakening demand. And we, and we do think China mobility will be a, a key theme throughout this year. Um, the strong US dollar is not great for, for positioning-wise, but... Um, the positioning of oil, the, the the people that move money around the, the CTA accounts, which are commodity trade advisors, um, they're all net short oil. So we're not that worried because they've already positioned for a negative oil price. So um, we're quite constructive on energy. We think the supply, OPEC Plus, has been very committed through the cycle and will react if they have to. So fundamentally, we think... Um, Oil price is okay this year uh, due to the supply side. 
Um, and Santos is just an absolute literature. It's standout on valuation. Um, it's, it astounds us and it's probably been a, it's astounding us for two years, unfortunately, um, on the valuation. But um, that has to change. It, it just has to change. Thank you. And perhaps now turning to the banks, Matt, um, Ashok has asked, what is your view on the banks for the next 12 months? Yeah, Ashok, good question. Um, the, the CBA really scared uh, everyone out of banks and it's really competition and it's been just so intense and some banks are offering, you know, $4,000, $10,000 cashbacks for mortgages. So that constructive environment has been competed away, unfortunately, for if you're a bank shareholder. So unless that competition falls away, which we don't think it will, we are... Probably the largest underweight would be in Aussie banks for a period because um, we just see it hard at this point in the cycle. You've got credit growth slowing. You've got NIM contraction where we thought NIM would be extended for another six to nine months. You've got the bad debt cycle starting to tick up. Um, and then you've got government pressure again. The, the ASIC talking about deposits and competition we think in the May budget, something's going to happen there with um, government intervention in the banks again. I mean, we've already seen a bank tax um, previously, um, but we just feel like there's a lot of headwinds stacking up for the banks. Look, we, we love the bank management teams, uh, most of them. Um, they're all pretty high quality, most of them again. Um, but, yeah, to see a lot of headwinds for them, it's hard to make too constructive case for the LP banks, unless valuations pull back to make them more attractive. But at these levels, happy to stay underway um, in, in a large manner, um, unless something changes. Thanks, Matt. Uh, and, John, over to you. Graham has asked, are you considering buying the Lottery Corporation? Yeah, TLC, we, uh, we do own that one. It's probably that next level below the top 20 that um, you don't get to see day to day, Graham. But, yeah, look, I think when the... Um, when the split occurred between Tab Corp and TLC, uh, I think we as a group uh, categorised it as the best company in the ASX and the worst company in the ASX splitting, and TLC being the best company in the ASX because it's just such a high-quality, reoccurring annuity-style business. Uh, very hard to stuff up, uh, as opposed to Tab Corp, which has been very easy to stuff up, stuff up over the years. So uh, you saw from the most recent result they've been able to kind of navigate and provide some sort of clarity around what a jackpot sequence should look like, what the earnings growth should look like and whether they have potential upside from repricing and the like. So um, we think it's a good solid core holding, uh, never going to be the biggest position in the fund, but something that will kind of continue to hold through the cycle and if ever got sold off. Um, yeah, it's definitely a name that we'd love to increase uh, in the right environment. Thanks, John. And, Matt, this one might be for you. John has asked, how does the WAM Leaders team weigh up quality against value for an investment? Yeah, okay. there's, there's obviously some strict definitions in the textbooks, but, I mean, the, the way we look at it is when we look at quality, uh, we're talking about the, 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 the sector they operate in, um, you know, the characteristics of that sector, um, and really the management team. Uh, management team is a massive one for us. So what we do throughout the year is we go and see all the management teams, we sit down with them, and we're looking for strong leaders with clearly articulated plans as well. Um, 
So there's a whole raft of uh, things we look for in quality. I mean, in the textbooks, you get the, the value bucket, the growth bucket, and we don't like to pigeonhole ourselves into those uh, those buckets. We, we try to assess quality in those things that I mentioned. Value is, again, like how do you define value? Um, value for us is, you know, value by, you know, textbook definition is, you know, they operate well in a steepening uh, yield curve environment, economic activity related, uh, you know, low PE. Um, again, is that helpful categorising that way? Probably not. Um, but value for us is when we go, good company at a low price. I mean, that's that's how we um, distinguish value. But, um, yeah, I mean, for us, yeah, quality is, is a huge one. We, we, we've got so many uh, factors we look at to, to assess the quality of the company. And the one other thing we'll mention is when it comes to quality versus value versus asset backing, a lot of the way we control risk is via the sizing of the position. And quite often a quality stock has a lower level of embedded return in it. But what we can do to get to maximise that return is have a larger weighting within the portfolio whilst uh, a stock which was perceived value uh, has typically more upside to where we think the the, the, the fair, fair the stock should be trading at fair value. So typically we'll, we'll have those uh, the risk controlled by the sizing position in the portfolio. Um, if to, to provide a little context on how we do it day to day. Thanks, John. And I think this is the last question that we have time for. Um, it's from Ashok. He says, "Is there any chance to increase the portfolio exposure to the tech sector going forward?" Slim pickings. We love the quality tech sector. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a huge uh, tech sector which is quality. But I mean, we we do own Wisec. Um, we do own Zero. Cubicle tech, REA, a little bit of. I mean, what we're looking for is the, the backdrop. We're not, um, we, we don't rule it out, but once we get the backdrop, which is conducive for the tech performance, 100% will we'll up the weight there. We just feel like we're, we've had the PE re rate in the market, and that's sort of probably going to unwind over the next month or two. And then that may be our opportunity to go back in there in a more meaningful manner. But um, the, what we've got to have is the right framework and what right environment for us to, to push that lever, and we just don't have that at this point in time. Thanks, Matt. And I think that's all we have time for. Um, so thank you, everyone, for sending through your questions and to Matt, John and Anna for joining us today. Uh, a recording of the call will be available on our website shortly. Uh, but, Matt, do you have any closing remarks? No, just, um, again, like, obviously... We're all working extremely hard um, through this cycle. It's it's obviously challenging for a lot of people too, but I, I guess the, the closing remarks would be we've been through this before. We, we, we're trying to pull the right levers at this point in time. The cycle is progressing as we had thought, um, and we're quite comfortable with how we're positioned. And, um, yeah, I'd just like to thank everyone for their continued support and um, look forward to uh, catching up next time. Thanks, Matt. And as always, please get in touch with us via phone or email at any time um, with any questions or feedback that you have. Thank you.